0: This is Professor Allen, and welcome to The Quarter Bin. In most of the prior episodes of this podcast, I've summarized, criticized, discussed, and reviewed single issues from my comic book collection, which I often selected at random. Any book from my comic book collection was eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. We asked if the issue was worth 25 cents or a bargain at 25 cents or still overpriced, and you stayed tuned and found out. But for this 100th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, or I should say, for this second part of the 100th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we are again going big. Because over the six supersized parts of episode 100, we are covering 100 comics. As I explained... Last episode, these 100 books came from a pair of 50-issue grab bags that I bought for $7 each. That's right, 100 comics at 14 cents each. Obviously, the reviews of these issues will be quite brief, and I'll be joined by guests for as many of these issues as I can possibly schedule. And I did not mention one important point in Part 2, so let me do that here. These segments were recorded over the span of many, many months with many different Skype connections, different microphones, different setups, and that's just on my end. The guests all have their different and varied scenarios for recording as well. So the audio quality and the volume may vary from segment to segment. I just wanted to acknowledge that. Also, these conversations have all been abridged to keep these episodes at the barely manageable length of almost two hours. So, there are moments when you'll be able to hear the edit points. The, the changes from one topic to another can be a little jarring every now and then. Again, apologies. We are saving our feedback for episode 100 for later, in a later part of episode 100. But keep those cards and letters coming. Like I said, these will be long episodes, and I want to get straight to the comic books. And we'll do that right after this. Starting off, we are heading to the Old World. Book 18 is Justice League Europe, number 7. DC Comics, cover dated October 1989. And joining me for this, in the shortest distance Skype call I think I've ever done, sitting less than two miles from me as the crow flies, it's my buddy Terry Colucci. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome to the show. Thank I'm... you. Can we say this is your podcast debut?
1: This is my podcast debut.
0: Know that you're a fan of a lot of DC books from this era, including some Justice Leagues. If I remember right, you had this book in your collection.
1: That is correct, Alan. Uh, Actually, we had a conversation in person not too long ago about uh, when your golden age was. And for me, this book hits me right at my golden age when I was 12 years old.
0: So you would have bought this right off the shelves.
1: My father was with the Air Force, so I was uh, deployed uh, overseas. We were stationed in England at the time, and it was at Stars and Stripes, is what it was called. It's just a a, a little, a little bookstore. They had newspapers and newsstand only comics. So I missed out on quite a bit. And actually, that's what makes this book so great for me is you've got a lot of these characters in here that you didn't. You know, they had their own solo books, but. You know the newsstand that I was at didn't carry them, so this was the only time I got to see these characters.
0: This was your chance to see a ton of characters.
1: There was a bunch of them that I really was interested in. They would show up every once in a while, like Hawkman and Hawk Girl. But I never got a chance to see them in their solo books. So that was a real treat whenever one of those characters would come along. Now let me let me just say about Power Girl.
0: It wasn't well, until 12, recently. So I think we pretty much know what you're going to say about Power Girl.
1: You know, you've got pencils by Bart Sears, and I kind of feel like he did Power Girl a bit of an injustice. I mean, his pencils are gorgeous, don't get me wrong, but he does kind of make her look like Paul Stanley from Kiss. Um,
0: <laughs> she does have very 80s hair.
1: She has very 80s hair. That is that is correct. Just to kind of talk a little bit about some of the other characters in this book, you've got Captain Adam. Uh, he's an Air Force guy. That kind of rang with me go. a little bit. You've got Crimson Fox, who's kind of an interesting character. You've got Metamorpho, who's you know really cool you know and those are all the guys on the Europe team and then you got the guest stars with the Justice League of America with Martian Manhunter and Batman and Guy Gardner and Booster and Beetle it's everybody you got Doctor Fate on top of that who you know just shows up randomly and now is is apparently a woman i didn't get the doctor fate book so i didn't see what was going on Since in that series but that was go. really interesting to me this is
0: how you learn yeah this was the first crossover Between the JLA and the JLE, or at least I guess under this title. And in the story, we've got the JLE is trying to contain a horde of vampires because we're in Eastern Europe. And that's where vampires are from. We've got uh, Batman and, and Ralph doing some detective work. We've got Dr. Fade and the Spectre having a chat. And then they end up shooting out of our dimension. And then that leaves behind... The Gray Man. He, like everybody, just wants to rule the world.
1: <laughs> well, who doesn't want to rule
0: the world, Alan? I mean, really. I love Batman and Elongated Man working together, because even though they are have slightly different approaches to life, they are both pretty good detectives.
1: You see this uh, through some of their interactions, that, that Elongated Man is actually, he's got a bit of a... a of a jealousy when it comes to Batman's detective skills. Like he, he really feels like he's got part of his identity
0: is tied up in that. Mm -hmm. So overall quick thoughts. If you lost this book out of your collection, I'm not saying if I stole it, but, and then you saw it for 25 cents, would you buy it back? Is it worth a quarter?
1: Absolutely. It was worth it. Like I said, every single panel, just about, you've got a different superhero doing something.
0: You know, different sets are interacting with different people. There's a lot of that Keith Giffen text. So it's not something you just whip through pretty quickly. It's It, it takes some time. That's all right.
1: Yep, although I got to say for my personal taste, there wasn't enough Guy Gardner screen time. Um, that just yeah, tells I'm a, us I'm, a
0: lot about you.
1: I got to tell you, Alan, Guy Gardner is probably my favorite character. I really enjoyed him because I felt like he was real. If you got the most powerful weapon in the universe on your finger, maybe, just maybe, you're going to use that power to your advantage from time to time. Just on it. And guess. do some cool things. You know, and he just wants to get some respect. That was one of the things that really drew me to the JLA book, uh, was because he got a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of character development there. And, uh, just watching the interactions that he had with people, he says the things that we would say. And, uh, I mean, I didn't didn't care for his personality, but I liked that he existed. He was a good foil for everybody else. I mean, they had that that storyline in in JLA where Batman knocked him out with one punch, and that was great.
0: Well, I agree with you on this one. It's had a lot of characters, a lot of good interactions, some legitimately funny moments that you expect, and it had vampires. I don't know if we mentioned it, but they're vampires.
1: It does have vampires in it. And in the second half of this, because this is only the first half of the story... Uh, you come to find out that it's, you know, it, it's not the vampires as we oh, understand it. They've, they've on, undergone Terry. some kind of chemical transmutation.
0: Well, even with that letdown, I agree. This is still worth a quarter. I right, did well,
1: okay. even pay two quarters.
0: Well, hey, now, watch your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> we don't talk hey, like that now. Here. Well, Terry, it's great to have you make your podcast debut here. Thanks for joining me to talk some JLE. It's
1: my pleasure, Alan. I'll talk Justice League Europe anytime.
0: And next up... Sticking with Marvel, books 19 and 20 are Sleepwalker 9 and 20, cover dated February 1992 and January 1993. Well, it's Sleepwalker. That means it's Chris Tyler.
2: Hey, Professor. How are you? I'm oh, sleepy. Perfect. <laughs>
0: that is perfect. Hey,
2: That's- if anything will <laughs> get me out of bed, it's it's this comic book. Because
0: <laughs> you are, as we hinted. A big fan of Sleepwalker. The big fan of Sleepwalker.
2: I am the big fan, and it's not just because of my weight. (laughs) I've been a fan of this character since his first appearance, when I was still very, very young. So this is not one you've
0: come to recently. You were on the ground floor.
2: Sleepwalker is the last book that I had a subscription to. Wow.
0: Yes. Other than uh, your own immaturity and youth, what was it about (laughs) Sleepwalker? What is it
2: about Sleepwalker? It was different than everything else. Go back in the Wayback Machine with us people. In the early 90s, it was not quite what the 90s were yet, but it was getting to that point where it was all X-Men all the time. Big guns, big pouches, big boobs, crummy art. (laughs) But it was different. It was not Spider-Man. It was not the X-Men. It wasn't Superman. It was more mystical. And it was also the time where Marvel was still willing to experiment and try to push out as many new characters as they could sleepwalker was the one that i stuck with because it was so different and part of the reason i still go back and reread this main series is because you can kind of take it as the 90s in a nutshell here's um, a creator that had a singular vision for his character that he wanted to get off the ground for almost 20 years and i'm not sure what the back behind the scenes were at marvel in terms of trying to force crossovers or changing what was going on in the book to what was really becoming popular at the time. But it is the 90s in a microcosm, where it starts off as not a 90s book, but those 90s tropes do start to come into it. So the series that you're given at the beginning, by the end of the series, a lot of things have changed.
0: Well, we got issue nine here. This is Sing a Song of Sin by Bob Budiansky, with art by Brett Blevins and Mike Manley. We're introduced to a newly married woman named Lullaby who possesses the power of mind control via hypnotic song. She does not appreciate it when Sleepwalker saves the new rich husband from a certain death. (laughs) She puts both his human host Rick and Sleepwalker under her thrall and they rob some jewelry stores because she's all about the bling but Sleepwalker was just pretending she has no power over him because he never sleeps.
2: Dun-dun-dun. Now, ah, I want to
0: go first on this one. Go for it. I thought this was fun.
2: Yes, this is a me ter- too.
0: Just a fun one-off with sort of a twist ending.
2: Really and enjoyed it. I really did, too. I was probably about 12 years old when this book hit, and at the time, you could still get a nice one-and-done issue with a nice little ending to it, with a little bow on it. You didn't have to necessarily pick up the next book or the book before to know what was going on. That kind of wackiness that you'll see in the early part of this book, it really does call back to the 60s Marvel Age stuff. And I think that's why I really gravitated to it so strongly when it first came out.
0: Now that is a little different from issue 20.
2: (laughs) Oh, boy. This
0: is Split Decision, also written by Budiansky. The art team for this one is Kelly Krantz and John Lowe. And this is part two of a six-part story arc, Mindfield. I guess somewhere along the line, Sleepwalker and Rick Sheridan have merged into one being. And I don't want to judge, but that is one ugly being. (laughs) It's got half of Rick's college, you know, normal-looking with Sleepwalker's ugly green mug on half of his face and one big red eye, and it's distinctive. I'll give him that. It certainly is. Now, that combined merging does help him defeat the Chain Gang, kicking them out of his dog Rambo's mind. I'm not going to (laughs) ask. But somehow Sleepwalker is only half-strength because of the merging, and so when the Chain Gang attack again... It takes all his energy to break their power, and somehow, in the process, Rick Sheridan ends up in control of the Sleepwalker body.
3: Now, Uh, this
0: one is a little harder for me, buddy. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Partly because it's an early chapter of a longer storyline. Also because I am not sure what's happening here.
2: I have two words for you, Professor. (laughs) Infinity Gauntlet. Okay. so originally the chain gang, which is a great hook for a bunch of bad guys, they're a bunch of prisoners. They escape and they're granted powers, but they all have to be connected by the chain that they were tied to in the prison bus on, which is a fantastic silver agey type hook for a bunch of bad guys. They remember Sleepwalker. Sleepwalker does not remember them because of infinity um, (laughs) stuff going on. So by the time they roll around again, Rick and, and Sleepwalker have no idea who they are. This is, again, what I'm talking about in terms of the 90s. In less than a year, you've got a completely different artist, uh, Mr. Kelly Krantz. Even before we've gotten to this point, the art style in the book had changed. Brett Levin's style had even changed more. Sleepwalker, instead of being a lanky, otherworldly being, became a muscle-bound masses of the universe figure like everything else that was right. going on. But jumping in here is probably not the place to do it because there is a lot of backstory with Cobweb, who is the archenemy of Sleepwalker, the chain gang, who you really did need to kind of read their first appearance. Otherwise, it's who the heck are these guys?
0: The phrase, who the heck are these guys,
2: did cross my mind. Rightly so. If this is the first book that you're picking up, it's 20 issues in. So as the the series did start off as one and done and two and done's really – the book did change, um, and it's funny because if you actually read the letters page of this issue of issue number twenty, I believe the first letter in there is "I really love this series. How I can pick up one issue and get a whole story? <laughs> oh boy, yeah. when did you send that in, <laughs> uh, buddy? But I mean, wanting to tell more complex stories is something that happens, and some of the longer form stories they do tell in this are interesting, with the the thought police and psycho. But really, from a certain point on, the book is heavy on its own continuity. As somebody who had the subscription to it, I was getting it every month, so that wasn't a problem. But if you were a new fan and you were looking to pick up a new book, it's really hard to find jumping-on points after the first year of this book. Just in terms of what you've already said, Professor, between issues 9 and 20, that's less than a year of publication time. It's a very different thing to try to read. But
0: recently, in the last few number of years sleepwalker has made a couple of appearances here. And i
2: there. i couldn't believe it uh because i've been so out of the loop with modern comics uh because they've they priced me out believe me uh, they oh i me oh out, i know who i'm i know who i'm talking to <laughs> professor it took somebody i believe it was christopher warden uh he messaged me and said hey did you realize sleepwalker is showing up in fantastic four And this was the end of the Fantastic Four since Marvel's decided to be petty and childish. He showed up as a key figure in the end of the Fantastic Four book, having probably the greatest impact he's had on the Marvel Universe ever. And we're talking even outside of his own book. He really came back in and was used effectively again in the Ms. Marvel book from 2007 and 2008. And he had um, some nice parts in that. Uh, but really, it's a character that has not been used um, as well as some other characters have been used, except in that Fantastic Four series finale, which was they used them very well. It's a character that I think they could use effectively, especially now where Marvel's basically saying, hey, here's our Doctor Strange. Here's our you know mystic universe. This is a character that's right from that same mold. I am holding out hope that uh, down the line I may get to see um, a big budget version of Sleepwalker somewhere, but I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> Good luck with that. I mean, can dream.
4: <laughs>
0: now, as the guest, you get to go first. So, Sleepwalker 9 and 20. Setting your biases aside, are these comics worth 25 cents?
2: Number 9 is definitely worth 25 cents. It's a fun read. You'll enjoy it. If you enjoyed issue nine and you decide to poke around in the sleepwalker universe i would start backwards first if this number nine is your first issue (laughs) count Uh, count
0: down before you count up
2: that first year of sleepwalker does kind of set the tone to the longer form stories that it does end up going into later on if you enjoy the character and you want to experience the 90s in microcosm then number 20 is also definitely worth 25 (laughs) cents let's be honest there's books that come out now for six five $4, $3 $4, $3 that aren't worth the paper that they're printed on. If you can get some old-school 90s Marvel comic books for a quarter piece, it's definitely worth it. <laughs> These
0: are all over the cheap ends. Totally agree yeah. that number nine is a steal.
2: Number nine a is a steal.
0: You know, I'd, I'd, I'd hesitated recommending 20 on its own, but if you could get most of that arc, mate, you know, it's what, 19 through 24 You'd pick st- up four or five of those
2: you'd need to start earlier and then you can yeah. get issue 25 which has got the gimmick cover of yeah course 90s does. and microcosm <laughs> i was excited when number 25 came in the mail i was very happy oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well chris thanks for joining me always glad to have your
0: sleepwalker expertise available on the rare cases when it's needed
2: the very rare cases that's why i'm a consultant But uh, it was a pleasure speaking to you, Professor, and I look forward to each and everything that the Relatively Geeky Network drops for me whenever it comes out. Thank you.
0: up let's get small it's books 21 and 22 power the atom 2 and 6 from dc comics cover dated september and winter of 1988 and officially making this the international edition of episode 100 from halfway around the world it's paul hicks
5: (laughs) g'day how you going
0: glad to have you on the show welcome
5: great to be here
0: Now, in our early negotiations for this episode, you mentioned that Power of the Atom was a book you knew well. When and how did you become acquainted?
5: I was getting into comics around this time when it was coming out. Invasion was an important crossover for me, and I sort of collected the tie-ins to that, and... Uh, If I noticed the series wasn't too old, I would go back and sort of collect the issues that led up to the start. So, uh, Invasion happened in 7 and 8 of Power of the Atom, so it was just a few months to get to be all caught up.
0: Now, I have to confess, I have always resented this title a little bit, because to me, the Atom was never better than he was in Sword of the Atom. Right. And this title sort of put an end to those annual specials. So I freely admit my bias against the series. You're here to offer a more objective viewpoint.
5: Different viewpoint. <laughs> my feeling on the series is it's solidly okay. Um, I actually curated it out of my collection once and then reacquired it again because I. one of the plots of this whole series is the Adam versus the CIA, which sounds like the perfect <laughs> Warren Ellis comic. Um, <laughs> there were dangling plot threads that uh, were wrapped up in John Strand's Suicide Squad. So I got rid of my Power of the Atom issues. I was rereading Suicide Squad and then all this Atom business got came back in there. <laughs> it's like, and it just <laughs> so I had to go and buy them again because I I really adore Suicide Squad and these were little pieces of continuity that uh, the omission of which was uh, really troubling. So
0: <laughs> I can totally understand that a lot of the premise of not even the quarter bin podcast but going to quarter bins in general was about reacquiring books that i'd gotten rid of when we were getting ready to move oh i let that one get out of my hands i gotta go get it back
5: <laughs> we don't have quarter bins in australia that's i'm just gonna say that the, about the cheapest you can ever find a comic for in australia is a dollar i mean i've probably been to just about every comic shop in the country because uh, i've traveled everywhere for work and well the equivalent of a quarter bin is barely existent in Australia. I uh, understand
0: my good fortune. (laughs) I am uh, hashtag blessed by the uh, (laughs) quarter bins that surround me. Let's talk about issue two. This is Just Like Starting Over by Roger Stern, Dwayne Turner, and Kez Wilson. Ray Palmer is stuck sort of mid-transition. He's three feet tall. But when he has to deal with a hostage situation at Ivy University... He figures out how to become Adam again, complete with a new costume. And as you said, Paul, the CIA wants to recruit him. So issue and two, what did we think of this one?
5: In the first issue, I believe he jumped through a satellite phone, and he usually travels by regular phone, and satellite phone messed him up. So he, the start of the issue, he's got three feet tall. Yeah, it's about sorting out his powers. Then at the university, there's an attack by uh, people from Kurak which is one of the, uh, the best made upper stands in the DC universe. Questionable, insensitive dealings. He, it was uh, the 80s, Paul. Yes, I, I guess it was. But uh, yeah, he solves that by imitating Allah <laughs> and beating them up, and they think he's a genie. Yeah, just like the real world.
0: <laughs> I do have to give Dwayne Turner some credit, because when he was three feet tall, it worked. There was one scene where he's holding Time magazine, and my first thought was, that magazine is way too big. That looks more like a newspaper. Oh, that's right. He's three feet tall. I guess if you're going to draw the atom, you have to have some basic skill at proportion and perspective.
5: Yeah. I I think the art in this comic is – it's adequate. (laughs) It gets the job (laughs) done. Not very flashy. I mean, you you imagine – the way this story would be retold today and the angles and the splash pages and all the things that aren't covered in uh, this stage, that all be there.
0: Was the late 80s, so we're still in the era of a lot happening in one issue. Yeah. So we've got a lot of panels, and a lot of those panels are pretty chock full of dialogue.
5: Yeah, it's not New Teen Titans level, Mm -hmm. but it's getting there. Yeah. At the start, his powers are all messed up. At the end, he his powers are all sorted out, and he has the ability to sort of shift his mass and, you know, throw powerful punches, you know, very similar to Ant-Man, particularly. And, uh, and he's got a new costume, which allows his hair to hang out.
0: If you had hair like that, wouldn't you?
5: I dream of having hair like that these <laughs> days.
0: But like you said, at least in this issue, stuff happened, as opposed to... Spoilers. <laughs> Issue six. Time, 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 see what's become of me. was also written by Roger Stern with art this time by John Byrne and Kez Wilson. At this point, Ray's secret identity is out in the open and the CIA is shadowing his every move. Kronos manages to spirit him away and hooks him up to a machine that recounts much of the Adam's past. But we learned that his old enemy has, in fact, stolen him so that they could work together fighting off invasion. <laughs> now, I don't know how much American TV gets over to your neck of the woods, Paul, or if Australian TV does this as well. But you are familiar with the concept of the clip show?
5: Yeah, I've watched The Brady Bunch. I've watched um, <laughs> Happy Days. I've watched Good Times. I've watched many of your American shows. Um, Australia's sort of got the top American shows and the top British shows, and we sort of had the oh, – we were the perfect bad. intersection of that's that. It's not bad. And then we, yeah, and then we had our fairly terrible local shows as well to, to watch.
0: <laughs> so the idea of the clip show. Basically recounting past stuff that's happened. That's pretty much what this one was, or is that, again, my uh, sword of the atom bias showing here?
5: From my perspective, I hadn't seen all this stuff happen in the original clips, so <laughs> seeing it all gathered <laughs> together here That's probably fair. had a bit more That's of fair. appeal for me. Kronos, he's, he's an interesting guy. He's, uh looks like Richard Nis- Nixon.
0: <laughs> I mean, I like the idea that he got sent back in time, and sort of cobbled together pieces of technology that would shoot him forward a couple of millennia or a couple of centuries. He did have to do some waiting around in various <laughs> parts of the past. So he's a patient fellow.
5: And a few writers in the DC universe remembered that he was stuck back in time and he would show up every now and again like in when Superman went back in time in mm. time and time again. Right. He uh, <laughs> encountered Kronos there. And he rocks the safety goggles. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That is an interesting design element, and uh, no matter what the costume is, it does have an hourglass on it. So he's living into his gimmick. That's what a good villain should do.
5: It's funny, though. I mean, this is John Bernhardt, but it, it doesn't strike me as John Bernhardt until every now and again you see a character that's just so John Byrne in the design. A very severe-looking woman on page 18. Right.
0: Oh, whoa, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
5: But uh, yeah, you're right. This is not as successful a self-contained story as uh, issue two was. You could say stuff happens, but it's, it's just stuff being remembered. But I'm really unsure of what uh, Chronos' plan was. If you really wanted to kill your enemy, you could kill him at this point.
0: And then after all of that, you tell him, hey, we need to work together. Bad guys are coming. Yeah. I mean, you could have maybe uh, opened with that. And like the rest of the <laughs> issue could have been them grabbing a pizza or, sorry, a shrimp on the barbie well, getting to know each other better as allies?
5: Well, I assume that this uh, the invasion happened while he was uh, torturing the Atom, and this was no, a change okay. of plans now. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like that.
0: The guest always gets to go first, and we can do these, you know, we can judge these two separately, but Power of Ooh. the Atom 2 and Power of the Atom 6, are these comic books worth 32.5 Australian pennies? <laughs> which is about what the exchange rate is, as close as I can
5: tell. I think issue two is the stronger of the two. Yeah. Um, and I think it's worth uh, 25 cents, or a quarter, as I believe you could. Um, <laughs> issue six, well, I haven't got a leg to stand on because I've bought it twice. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I bought it at cover price once, and um, I rebought it in a batch on eBay at some point. So uh, you know, obviously, I can't honestly say that it's not worth twenty five cents because <laughs> it is worth more than that to me.
0: I do see a decent number of issues from this title in cheap bins, and number two, definitely worth a quarter. I hesitate recommending number six just like on its own. It sort of has that feeling of we need to fill the hole in the schedule. Before we get to invasion? Sort of it sort of had that feel of well in a month this big thing's gonna happen, so can you tread water? You get a pass because you're being a completionist. <laughs> you had to get all the issues, I understand. As a standalone, it's a little more borderline. But let's yes. say issue two, a definite quarter bin deal. Yeah. Well, Paul, yeah. thanks for joining me. Glad to have your power of the atom wisdom on this one.
5: <laughs> Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you so much.
0: Remember that these grab bags of comics that I had have a visible book at each end? The most modern books and likely the most marketable books? I picked up the two packs that had the best-looking books at the ends. And one of those comics is this one. This is Book 23, Astro City 23, from DC Comics, cover date of July 2015. And joining me to discuss this one is Billy Hogan. Hello, Billy.
6: Uh, Pleasure to be on. I'm a big fan of your podcast.
0: We all know you are a Superman guy. Oh, yeah. How long have you been an Astro City man as well?
6: I've always been a fan of any alternate takes on the superhero genre. Sometime in the last decade, I checked out the first volume of Astro City and the first story was with the Samaritan, who is the Superman-type superhero in the Astro City world. I really loved it, and then when Vertigo announced that they were going to start publishing a series of Astro City comic books, I made sure to put that on my uh, subscription list.
0: Let me give a brief synopsis of Astro City 23. Sticks. Written, of course, by Kurt Busiak, with art by Brent Anderson, and the cover, of course, is by Alex Ross. This is the story of a silverback gorilla, as he says, the coolest of the great apes. Raised in the hidden Gorilla Mountain in the Antarctic, this ape, as a youngster, discovered human music. Rock and roll, pop, ska, hip-hop. He taught himself to play drums, which was not allowed by the ape council. So Styx escaped and made his way all the way to Astro City. Just to play drums, that was his plan. But his natural heroism, military training, and enhanced guerrilla strength draw the attention of interested parties and put his human bandmates in great danger. And at the end of the issue, he's just not sure what to do with his life. Now, I would ask Billy your general thoughts on the issue, but first... What are your thoughts on DC's history of apes and gorillas in their comics? Spoiler, I love it.
6: I've always loved the apes, you know, intelligent ape stories. I've read a few of The Flash, and then, of course, uh, Kong Gorilla Mm -hmm. was in the back of Action Comics, I believe, at one point in the Silver Age. I really enjoyed the job that Uziak did with the story of... (coughs) this intelligent gorilla her music does a great job of drawing you into the character and when you're done with the issue you want to read more about that character and it doesn't matter who the main character of the issue is that he does such a good job of fleshing out that world feel like you've only seen just a little part and there's so much more and you just want to dig into it some more
0: yeah i've only read At most, maybe a half dozen Astro City issues at this point, and I realize what a big blind spot that has been for me. And part of it was it had jumped from so many different publishers to publishers, and I know that the stories tend to stand alone, but somehow sort of always wanted to start at the beginning, but then I just found some cheap issues, and boy am I glad I took that plunge these are universally really good stories.
6: Yeah, they are. Especially this one, you know, you, he doesn't fit in the gorilla city he came from. And he's struggling to, to kind of find himself in a human world.
0: Yeah, sort of talking gorilla meets footloose. And this story does continue into the next issue. But it's not a traditional cliffhanger in the sense that you know, this is the only one I have, issue twenty three. I don't have the next issue. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't end with a plot cliffhanger. It ends with sort of a character cliffhanger, which serves as a complete story.
6: Every issue of Astro City I've read it that limited number of pages that he's able to tell a whole arc of a story. It's kind of like in the old days, like in the Silver Age, you would have three stories and you had like maybe six to eight pages to tell the whole story.
0: Technically speaking, there's a little bit of a cheat. This one, I think, has 24 or 25 pages. So these tend to be just a little bit longer than an average sort of modern comic story might be 20 or 22 pages. So he gives himself a little bit of extra room, but not much.
6: It, you know it's kind of like the old idea with d c and Marvels. like every comic book mm. can potentially be <laughs> someone's first comic book right i I thought it was neat that he had the, wasn't just a talking gorilla but you know he had a talent for music and it just mm-hmm. you know added something you know to the character he does you know he he just wanted to be in a rock and roll band right but he's got this other what which way do i go do I, do I become a superhero or just you know stick being a drummer in a band or something like that
0: he's got gorilla skills and yeah, gorilla training so he's fast he's smart he's strong and he finds himself in a situation it was a burning building was one he knew that he could get in and do the rescue before anyone else could so sort of that that natural heroic instinct There's that sense of melancholy to the ending as well, at least as far as this issue ends. Again, not knowing part two of the story, but in one issue, you really get to know this character and go on this emotional journey with him.
6: Kurt Busiek really knows to get inside the head of the characters.
0: Well, the guest is the one who goes first, and I think I know the answer to this. But Astro City 23, Billy Hogan. Is this comic worth 25 cents?
6: If I have your rating right, it's what you call a steal.
0: (laughs) Total agreement on that one. I I mean, I have a feeling this may end up one of the best issues that I talk about on this entire multi-part episode. And And I think I'll make this general comment, which I imagine you'll agree with. If you find any issue of Astro City for a buck or under it's almost certainly going to be a great deal.
6: Yeah, I've gotten every issue in the Vertigo run. The way I read comic books, the ones I'm looking forward to read the most, I put at the bottom of my pile. And Astro City is always one of those at the bottom of my pile. And I've never been disappointed in waiting to read that issue last. They've always been really great stories. And he does a really good job of exploring the kind of unexplored corners of the superhero universe.
0: Agreed. Billy, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate your insights and your experiences with Astro City.
6: Well, Professor Allen, it was a pleasure to finally be able to talk to you in person over the Internet, and uh, (laughs) especially about a great comic book series like Astro City.
0: Next up, back to Marvel, and back to the 1990s. Books 24, 25, and 26. It's Deathlock 5, 16, and 26. Cover dated various months in 1991, 92, and 93. And joining me to discuss these is the great Kansan, Greg Arujo. Hello! Welcome to episode 100.
7: Well, thank you. I take it that the paperwork came in, my exclusive contract with Ryan Daly. You don't know how much I had to pay him. I, I
0: hope I end up being worth it. Well, we're looking at some Deathlock this morning. And yes. what is your broad experience with and general thoughts on
7: Deathlock? I like the idea of Deathlock. I like the idea of a cybernetic hero. My exposure to him was an issue of Marvel team-up. Spider-Man was transported into the future and had to deal with uh, Deathlock and some roving gangs, as I recall. It's been a little while since I've read that story, but I like the look of the character, and I like the interaction between Deathlock and the computer inside of his head. And then I remember, thanks to the, the miracle of the Spinnerack, I really didn't encounter him much. I couldn't find any comics with him in it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've gone back a little bit and read Dwayne McDuffie's run, and mm, right. I really like the concept of it. I really wish Marvel Unlimited would have it on their service. <laughs> yeah,
0: for me, it's pretty much these three issues and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on TV.
7: Yes, I did try watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it just never clicked for me, but I know that he made, the, he made an appearance on
0: there. I may have read one or two other issues along the way, or, or like you said, him appearing as a guest.
7: I think he works well as a guest. I don't know if he works mm-hmm. well as
0: a lead. Well, we do have three issues to chat about. The first two were from that Dwayne McDuffie run, the third was by Gregory Wright, and they all have different art teams. Yes. So we'll do a quick summary of Deathlock 5, which wraps up a four issue arc. Got Deathlock and his super powered allies who battle Mechadoom and his Doombots. I was rooting for the Doombots. Ultron is involved also, and we have lots of cybernetic characters musing on cybernetics and humanity and all that. And that's really the overall theme. The decision on which of the villains to kill is left up to Deathlock, and he ends up choosing none of them.
7: You know, I like the idea of a Doombot gaining sentience and Mm -hmm. was desperately afraid of losing his individuality. I don't know if that's happened previous to that, but I think it's a nice hook. I love how Deathlock, just steadfast adherence to his principles, he will not kill. He won't take the easy way out and just destroy Mechadoom. Uh, He won't let the heroes destroy him. He won't let Mechadoom kill himself.
0: Overall, I I really enjoyed this issue. Yeah, I thought the the theme was really well thought out and delivered well, and that, that type of discussion of what is human mm-hmm. and uh, am I going to kill or not, those can sometimes come across as a little clunky or even a little preachy, but McDuffie was just a better writer than that.
7: Taking this one issue by itself, and I subscribe to the, the theory of the satisfying chunk, mm-hmm. the, is this comic by itself a satisfying read into itself? I didn't need to read the first parts of this, this story arc. He got, gets you up to exactly. speed right away, yep. and it doesn't feel... Sometimes when they do the recap, it feels clunky and intrusive. I think it kind of flows in nicely, and you're brought up to speed pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, I like that one a lot. That brings us to number 16, an Infinity War crossover that provides our hero, Michael Collins, an opportunity to see an incarnation of himself that is the opposite of of the one he fought not to become. It's even worse than the cold killing machine he was intended to be, because this guy's just pretty flat-out evil. But our heroic Deathlock defeats the thing by, I don't know, something with his input-output ports and shutting down its brain and all of that. Because of Marvel technology? (laughs) Exactly. So your thoughts either about this issue... Or about Infinity War in general, if that's something you know a bit about?
7: I read Infinity War back in the day because I was foolish and young, and I bought it off the shelves. It, was it as good as Infinity Gauntlet? No. But it was definitely better than Infinity Crusade. I mean, that, that's yeah. what I can say about it. it, it my thoughts on this, it's, it's fight, 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 yes, fighting, it is. fight.
0: 22-page fight scene.
7: If you just kind of take out the Infinity War shenanigans... As a fight comic, it works well. It's kind of, I don't know if there's much there, there. Without the yeah. Infinity War tie-in, you really don't have a reason to have him fighting an evil duplicate of
0: himself. We do, again, sort of get that hawk and dove, mm-hmm. you know, comparison. We get the the two guys fighting, one of them willing to kill, one of them not. So a little bit of tension, a little bit of drama there.
7: Ultimately, when I walk away from this, I kind of have the same feeling that Deathlock's roommate has you're right it doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. and i think that is so obviously meta commentary on about being tied being forced to be part of this tie-in this issue is a single issue that's between two story arcs maybe it's a palate cleanser you get a breather from the last whatever the story arc was there before you start up the next one as these types of crossovers go mostly harmless
0: (laughs) exactly And that brings us to Deathlock 26. Deathlock battles the Hobgoblin, who had been hired to take out his whole family. So Deathlock spends the issue battling the Hobgoblin. His best friend Jesus gets tricked by a beautiful woman, because that's what they always do. (laughs) Michael gets his wife to the hospital just in time for her to give birth to the newest Collins, baby Patricia. What would you think of this one?
7: Uh, not much. Yeah,
0: I um, think as we've gone from 5 to 16 to 26, we've slid a little bit down the scale.
7: Yeah, I think so. It doesn't and help that the, this one wasn't written by McDuffie. This was Gregory Wright, who, when he wasn't coloring the book, would occasionally write the series. Yeah, I hate Hobgoblin.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is a problem.
7: I'm already going into it with, with some apprehension. Deathlock doesn't feel right. We've gone through 25 issues up to this point, and now he decides that he's going to kill the Hobgoblin. And even that decision is taken away from him as he manages to get away, as the Hobgoblin manages to get away.
0: Now, to be Um, fair, he's had a pretty rough day. Emotions running high from the attack on the family to the baby mama about to have a new baby.
7: The wife going into labor in the middle of the battle, so cliched <laughs> it was it wasn't quite a slog, but it was pretty close yeah. um and and all these other subplots that are filtering in the original deathlock making an appearance um the thing going on with his his roommate and the the mysterious woman do I care about any of this stuff? Do I want to read the next issue? Not particularly
0: again, just having read these three, I like sort of thematically that this idea of the, the pacifist, mm-hmm. you know, within this body, I mean I guess that's the basic shtick of Deathlock, that's the, the distinctive aspect, you know, but that was, you know, carried through in each of these issues.
7: I mean, of the three issues, this one felt the most 90s.
0: And, and again, that's possibly the drop-off from Dwayne McDuffie. We are doing a comparison here, I, I, I do think it's fair yeah, to say, I... you, you know, the first two stories were written by a real top-level comic professional. And the other one was yeah. written by a journeyman. That's you know that's okay.
7: I suppose it's a good writing job by a colorist.
0: <laughs> so there you go. So again, I, I think that was clearly uh, my my least favorite of the three as well.
7: Yeah, mine as well. And even even if you take away my, my intense dislike for Hobgoblin,
0: <laughs> see, I come in neutral on Hobgoblin, and yet we land at the same place on the issue. <laughs> so I think that's I think that's reasonable. The guest gets to render the final judgment first. I guess we could do them individually or in total. Are these worth 25 cents or, in general, this run of Deathlock? If you see it in the cheap bins, what do you do? If you're a
7: Deathlock completist, and I'm sure there's some out there, it's probably worth a quarter. If you're a fan of Dwayne McDuffie, definitely worth the quarter. But actually, all the McDuffie issues are worth a quarter, and the Gregory Wright one definitely pass.
2: Yeah.
0: I agree, and and you know, like I said, Deathlock in general is not to my taste, and I don't know that these issues will make me run out and get a lot more. But think- again, the early part of the run, I'll admit, those ones did surprise me. You know, if I can get the rest of that four-part storyline or some other standalones or arcs within those first dozen issues or so, I'd definitely be tempted.
7: And the original miniseries is worth getting. Um-
0: yes, I've I've heard that as well.
7: The earlier issues definitely make me want to reassess my initial feelings about the character. And you've reassessed
0: your feelings on Hobgoblin? No. <laughs> he can stay in the quarter bin. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me, Greg. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you
7: for for having me.
0: Next up, we're going back, back, back to the 30th century. Book 27, Legion of Superheroes 43 from DC Comics, cover dated February 1988, and it's also, and this is important, Millennium Week 6. Joining me for this one, one of the best comic book blogging ER doctors in all of New England, it's Ange.
4: Glad to be here. I'm always jealous when I hear about your quarter box uh, finds because the best we have up here in New England are dollar boxes.
0: Everything's more expensive in New England, I guess. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Now, we know you as a Supergirl fan, and you're also a Legion man, and these are related properties as far as comic book history go. So my question is for you, which one came first and did they lead into each other?
4: The Legion definitely came first. Basically, when I was very young, my parents uh, had a beach house that we used to go to and we used to go to yard sales all the time. It was like a Saturday routine. There would just be stacks there. And so the very first comics that I remember reading were from like the 1972 to 1974 time period, because that was about five years in the past of when I was going to these yard sales. My first comics were Mike Grell era Legion comics, and I grew to love them. Yeah, I I love those books. I mean, I consider Two Eleven to be my very first Mm -hmm. comic. Right, (laughs) Element Lad going after Roxas. So from there, then you learn about Superboy, and you know, then you start to read lots of Legion books, and then you become a Superman fan and start to read Superman, and then you become a Supergirl fan from there.
0: In this story, we have. And Wake to Find a Dream, written by Legion superscribe Paul Levitz, with art by Greg Laroque and Mike DiCarlo, we start in the ruins of the Manhunter Temple, recently destroyed by Laurel Kent. The Legion finds no trace of her in a few locations, but she attacks a site in the Grand Canyon. She holds off eight Legionnaires and nabs a special energy detection device. Using this... She locates a hidden city in the Himalayas, chock full of Owen energy. A fierce battle with the Legion follows, until Laurel suddenly realizes that the city is long abandoned, decaying. Believing that the Chosen have long since vanished from the Earth, Laurel the Manhunter concludes that she had emerged from hiding hundreds of years too late to complete her mission, knowing that she has no possible chance of success now, she... Explosively self destructs. Laurel Kent, former Legion trainee, is gone. Dr. Ange, deep cleansing breath, your thoughts.
4: Well, the best thing about this book is there's an ad for the Howard Chicken Blackhawk in the back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There are any number of problems that I have with this issue. So first of all, it has the stench of millennium on it. And let's face it, you're probably starting off pretty low if you're a millennium tie-in. Laurel Kent had been a, a character in the Legion in sort of the early 70s, indeed introduced in that Mike Grell era that uh, I sort of grew up with. She was a descendant of Superman. Uh, She had a very strong resemblance to Lois Lane. She also always dressed exceedingly skimpy.
0: I see that Shag has joined the call.
4: Good. (laughs) Uh, So the the issue with her is that she then becomes a member of the Legion Academy, and she's kind of always a little bit in the background. Many characters were revealed to be hidden manhunters, but this one in particular struck me as being odd because just about a year and a half, maybe two years before this book came out, she actually was involved in a pretty big storyline where she had been shot with a kryptonite bullet. She's bleeding, she has to have surgery, she has to recover. Hmm, I think they would have noticed if she was a robot. Some people have said, well, this book takes place post-crisis, and that storyline was pre-crisis, and so maybe when the new universe was created, some change happened to her storyline, but... Now, in the
0: crisis, the Legion was one of the group's whose history was messed up because of the lack of Superboy.
4: Is this part of that, sort of cleaning up the Legion? I I mean, I think the tricky part about this is that she's a descendant of Superman, and it's not as if the crisis got rid of Superman, right? So you can still have a Superman descendant in the 31st century. Now, whether or not they just wanted to say, hey, we want to get rid of all of these, to quote Dick Giordano, barnacles on the hull of Superman's mythos in this, you know, burn era, maybe they just decided that she was a a pretty expendable character given everything that's going on. You know, I guess that maybe this was just them saying, no, we're just going to streamline even the future of this sort of Superman crisis Mm -hmm. problem.
0: I had no particular remembrance recollection of this story, uh, picking it up for this, though I'm pretty sure I would have read it when it came out. I was still reading The Legion in the late 80s. But coming to this, I did know of the reputation... And that the reputation is not good. But even yeah. then, you know, even coming in with low expectations, it's just sort of a dud of a story.
4: This particular story is a little bit nonsensical. She blows up the temple. She blows up the Grand Canyon. They created this city that she goes to at the end. I mean, that's the part that gets me like, how much lead time did they need to do this? Raniac 5 says... This city we fabricated and irradiated to trick Laurel into believing it had once been the home of her immortals. So they built a city? If she didn't blow herself up, boy, that was a lot of work for no reason.
0: What would have been their preferred endgame?
4: Yeah, I I don't... uh, That's never
0: explained or never... It's hard to make sense of that.
4: But then to have her blow herself up is sort of like, boy, what a waste. Even of this minor little character.
0: They could have gone the seven of nine route of trying to really bring her back from this manhunter existence that
4: she'd had? She could have said, it's clear that whatever I was supposed to do is meaningless now. Now I can carve my own life. I don't know. I kind of always liked the character of Laurel Kent. Again, I'm a Superman family sort of a person, so the idea that somebody was still kicking around at this time, I thought was always intriguing. And so even though she was a super minor character, this just sort of seemed like a waste of some potential. Even if you kept her as a manhunter, it's interesting that they decide they bury her robot parts in this place and they make a headstone that they put Laurel Kent on because they said, you know, she lived most of her life as this person. And so, you know, we should bury her as that. But this is, you know, on a mountainside in the Himalayas, this isn't something people are going to find.
0: Well, this is not going to be a spoiler to everyone, but the guest always gets to go first. Was this thing worth 25 cents?
4: You know, the sad thing is I paid a buck seventy five for it back in 1988. <laughs> so um, I would say no, this was definitely not a quarter box treasure. This is a pretty bad story. I don't know if I would have gotten this in the 25 cent box, read all of those subplots and said, this is the book I want to come back to because yeah. um, this main story is just pretty lousy.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I guess if you're a Legion completionist, or for some reason, who knows why, a Millennium completionist? Does that person even (laughs) exist? I can't believe that person exists. Other than that, I really can't see a reason to pluck this one, at least by itself, out of the cheap bins. The thing about the Legion is that there are plenty of their books from the late 80s on up in cheap bins, in quarter bins around here. So I'd recommend pick up some others of their issues definitely but maybe leave this one behind
4: you know they call this the Baxter series the majority of the Baxter series by Levitz is really fantastic so any other Baxter issue I would say pick it up and give it a whirl for the most part those are of high quality but Mm -hmm. uh, this kind of sticks out
0: well Dr. Ange thank you for joining me on this one and I apologize (laughs)
4: <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me. I mean, any time I get to talk to Legion is a good time. So, um, even it's <laughs> even though it's this issue, I'm happy to do it.
0: Next up, one of our four headline books, the ones that were visible at the end of the grab bags, the ones that made me select these particular grab bags over all the others. This is Book 28, Saga 28, from Image Comics, cover dated May 2015, and in terms of potential guests, there was only one choice for this issue. So, Welcome to Quarterbin 100,
8: Hope Mullinax! Hi! Glad to have you here. Welcome! I never get to talk about Saga except for with my customers, so it's nice to talk about other people.
0: (laughs) I assume you've been reading this from the start?
8: I came in probably right around after book two, book three came out. Um, I started working at a comic book store and I became the assistant manager. And so I've always read like a lot of like Marvel and DC and stuff like that. But I really hadn't branched into any of the independents. So I asked my coworker, I was like, what well, would it be a good independent novel to read? And he was just like, you got to read Saga. <laughs> so I got the first book and I read it. And just from the opening line, I was hooked. I, I loved everything about it. It's Game of Thrones meets Star Wars with some Romeo and Juliet thrown in. (laughs) That is Saga in a nutshell. Brian K. Vaughn's writing is so... It's funny and unforgiving, and it's easy to shock you where you'll laugh on one page, and you literally flip the page and someone dies. (laughs) And Fiona Staple's artwork is gorgeous. It's so bright and vibrant
0: yeah, I, I enjoy the other works of these creators that I've run across before. Huge fan of Why the Last Man, etc. A lot of BKV stuff. And where I've seen Fiona Staples work, I've enjoyed that as well.
8: It's probably our best-selling trade in our store. Um, if you're listening, I, I work in a comic store, like I said.
0: Well, what we have here, this story is Chapter 28, written, as we said, by Brian K. Vaughn with art by Fiona Staples. And it's pretty hard to synopsize, being one chapter of a long saga, but I can give the theme, which is that war is harder on women than it is on men, but regardless of sex, everyone loses something in a war. And the first casualty of that is always the truth, and this theme is demonstrated at the end of the issue in the death of Yuma. Your thoughts, Hope?
8: This issue very prominently features the majority of the female cast at the mm-hmm. time of this. This was a really good example about how crazy Saga is. Is mm-hmm. Here's Yuma. She's this drug dealer, and she literally gets herself high to save everybody's life. That's a crazy, mm-hmm. crazy-ass ending. And I, I think it's really interesting that this. the very first line of this issue is, and that's what abortion is. Mm-hmm. Because that is kind of what war is as well. It's sort of about, like, on a general level, groups of people who really don't have a say in the atrocities around them. Or is kind of this death of a lot of things, not just mm-hmm. the truth, but also physical deaths, um, emotional deaths, separations, sure. uh, destructions of families. I mean, just look at our our history. I mean, mm-hmm. this might sound a little harsh, but, like, look at World War II. Hitler tried to literally abort an entire race of people. Mm-hmm. And just destroy them and end them right there without their say or consent. Yuma made a choice that not a lot of characters in this in this series gets. She got to choose her own death. Mm, right. That doesn't always happen.
0: For a story first person like me, I want to get the plot figured out. You know, jumping right into the middle of a story like this is obviously tough. Mm-hmm. The beauty of the language, the beauty of the art, really drew me in. And it wasn't really what I expected because all I knew was this, you know, sort of big picture concept as you proposed it. And this one did not feature who I thought were the main characters.
8: No, this this is definitely more of a mm-hmm. secondary book.
0: Yeah, But that, um, did, but that didn't matter because it was a really good read anyway. This issue definitely had an ending. There is that to say for it as well.
8: Where Saga gets really interesting is when people start switching sides. Like, Prince Robot is traveling with them in this issue, but he's actually started off the story uh, hunting them, and they got him on, his, on their side, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. He's still kind of like a great character. It's just a brilliant book. I definitely suggest starting at the beginning, because sure. the, ish- uh, the first volume's only nine ninety nine.
0: One extra thing I liked about this is that it ended with a four-page letter page.
8: I was really sad because a lot of times people add their own artwork and cosplays in this, and they'll feature them in the letter page. So I was really sad mm, that there was oh, no okay. artwork or, or cosplays in this. Sometimes Brian answers it. Sometimes Fiona answers mm-hmm. it. Sometimes mm-hmm. both of them answer it. That's but I, I kind of wish they had some of the artwork and the cosplays like they do a lot of times, and I was very sad to see that that wasn't in there.
0: Sort of an unfair question because I got this as part of a grab bag. That's how I got it so cheap. Obviously, we found some Saga for a quarter. We would snap them right up.
8: Uh, It would only be in a quarter, but if it was damaged, so yeah. It was a
0: mistake, yeah.
8: I I think a first printing of the first issue is a couple hundred dollars.
0: (laughs) But if you can find anything, anything from Saga, pick it up. Top quality stuff.
8: And pick it up from your local comic book store.
0: Well, Hope, thank you for sharing your fandom and excitement for this title with us.
8: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I This is really great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Next up, we are heading to The Fourth World, books 29 and 30. Our New Gods, 7 and 8, from DC Comics, cover dated August and September of 1989. And to talk to me about these books is Chris Willette. Chris, I know that you are a major horror geek and a top-of-the-line Lord of the Rings nerd, but I don't know about your comic book nerdhood. I was born in the
9: 70s, raised in the 80s, watched the Super Friends, watched Black and White Superman, Color Superman, and Wonder Woman, Batman. And I didn't get into comics until, oddly enough, the Transformers. And I was right on board. I think I was there at Transformers number eight or so, and I got all the back issues. But a while ago, I was just like, I wanna start reading these things and I started looking for graphic novels. Then I stumbled on Doug to because he had done album covers for bands I liked. <laughs> so and I had the soundtrack to one of his video games because another band I liked did it. So I started reading his stuff and was just like obsessed with it. Really, I think the big turn, and this is so cliche, I found in the library the Dark Knight Returns which I remembered (laughs) flipping through, like, as a child. That explains a lot. I would go to the grocery store with my mom, and they used to have, like, all magazines in this front area. I remember it was made of wood. Sometimes she'd let me sit there and look at the magazines, and I'd flip through issues, which I can't even believe I held those in my hand, issues (laughs) of The Dark Knight
3: Returns.
9: Then when I checked it out this time, I was going through a little, like, mental thing, with wanting to give up on art and creativity and stuff like that. And I'm feeling older and I'm raising my daughters. And here was a story about old Batman who has given up on everything and feeling he has to come back. These things yeah. can speak to me. And that that was it. I've been catching up ever since. And actually, that's I started looking for comic book podcasts right after that. And that's when I found you. New Gods... This is going to be a scary answer, maybe. I've generally known about them through listening to podcasts. Kevin Smith was talking (laughs) a lot about the New Gods, and to the point where when I was watching DC Superhero Girls, Superhero (laughs) High, with my daughters... (laughs) Which which is awesome, by the way. Awesome. Granny Goodness is there, and then she's got a pet parademon, and she's opening the boom tube. So I got, like some education about the new gods from that. If I'm in a bookstore, I'll go to the collected stuff, where I can look at the back and see there's a the
0: end. Yeah, there's a beginning, a middle, and most importantly, an end. All right, well, these issues are the first two parts of the six-issue story, Bloodline, singular,
6: (laughs) to differentiate
0: it from Bloodlines, which... The less said, the better. <laughs> These books are produced by Mark Evanier, Paris Cullins, and Willie Blyberg. We're going to run the synopses for the two issues together, because it is telling one continuous story. So we have Orion making an incognito pilgrimage into the depths of the Armageddon in his search for Section Zero. His goal is to free his mother, Tigra. As Orion searches the underground, he learns that he may have more in common with the dregs of Apocalypse than he wants or can stand. Darkseid becomes aware of Orion's presence and sends Kalabak to hunt him down. Light Ray is sent to Apocalypse by Highfather to find Orion. Orion battles Tyrus and Tracker and discovers the hidden location of the Hunger Dogs. But he finds the Resistance group less than willing to help him, lest they be discovered by Darkseid. Now, there is a lot going on in these issues, Christopher. Even for someone really familiar with the characters and the world. So, on a scale of one to ten, how lost were you? <laughs> I did have to pay a lot of
9: attention. I actually wondered if I was thinking, giving more credit to the dialogue that I would have thought was clunky if I knew who these people were. But the little aside <laughs> saying, like, I am this guy, it really helped. There you go. The art seems a little mushy in the beginning, but I think it's supposed to be. Like, I like it. But it made it even more like, OK, what's going on? Who are these people? And all the names being <laughs> just a little off. Calibac, because I'm mixing him up with the guy from the Tempest, Caliban. hmm right. And Loki's in it? And it's <laughs> right. vaguely Norse, but... Not really,
0: but sort of?
9: These new gods are kind of like, they shuffled the deck on any mythological something or rather.
0: Your instinct is right, because there is, in, in the full backstory... Of apocalypse and new genesis, etc. There, there are some very Shakespearean elements. So, you catching that is is actually a, an insight.
9: I'm glad I had full one. credit. Full credit yeah. on that one. That was interesting because you've got the two different worlds, and obviously, new genesis and apocalypse. You've got the beginning and the end. Mm-hmm. One of them's nice. One of them's not. But they're going to try to switch kids. That part was a little confusing. Yeah,
0: that was part of the original peace treaty. Okay. You're right, also on the art, because this is an original Jack Kirby creation. Okay. From the day, and so all of the artists attempt in one way or another to, I think, adapt their style a little bit to that. So you often will get in New God Stories the idea of one artist trying to ape another artist and Uh. so that can sometimes lead to some inconsistencies because they're they're not necessarily working in their own style so the important question and you get to answer it first hypothetically were there quarter bins near you (laughs) these issues worth 25 cents
9: Flipping through them, I wouldn't be like, oh, this looks cool. I'm going to get this. I'd think this looks like something I'd need to know more about. Having received it and read it, like, if I found more of these, I would definitely pick them up for a quarter. It was a fun story, and they were neat ideas. Like, when they're arguing about who they're going to stick their allegiance to, you get the father guy from New Genesis saying that, it can't be an allegiance to a person anymore. It has to be an allegiance to like an ideal and a creed. I thought that that was a really complex idea, especially for comic books or even just fantasy genre in general. It was neat to see this shade of, no, you need to decide what you believe and what you're fighting for. Cause this is going to get so weird that you're never going to know who's on your side and who are you supposed to be trusting but if you actually decide on your ideals and decide what you're fighting for then you can fight for that i thought that was particularly interesting and that was one of the things that would make me keep going
0: one area i I agree with you on in terms of of these is the world is so different it's so weird that if you can find a run for cheap get get enough of it Yes, then it would definitely be worth the read
9: one of the comic book stores I frequent just started doing that thing where if they have old runs they put them together in one bag oh, right. so I'm going to talk to them about this one
0: great well thanks for joining me Christopher great to have you well thank you Next up, we move boldly back into the 90s. Books 31 and 32, Nomad 2 and 3, these are from the four-issue miniseries, from Marvel Comics, cover dated December 1990 and January 1991, and to talk with me about these books is Pat Sampson.
10: Hello, a pleasure to be on.
0: Now let me ask you this, this can be a personal question for some comic book fans. The early to mid-1990s. Okay. Where were you in your comics reading, comics collecting?
10: You just hit me probably in my height of my reading slash collection.
0: I was going to uh. say this is a no-shame zone, but maybe <laughs> that admission. I don't know. That's that's rough, man.
10: It's It was the height of my collection looking at my database. So in 1990, my collection says I have about 169 comics and in 1991 we rapidly jump up to 303 comics from That's that time almost to. one a day. Yeah. And then we Uh-oh. in 1992 we hit the height of my you know buying is 503 for 1992.
0: I'm almost sure that's more than one a day.
10: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you you go to, I went you go to the every week he, yeah, you, I know. You know, And then it starts, to, it starts to go back down, 1993, about <laughs> 474, 1994, 233. And then in 1995, something in my life must have happened where it's only like 63 comics <laughs> for that year.
0: That's about where I was <laughs> at this point. This here in the 1991, my wife was pregnant with M at this point. Mm-hmm. I was at grad school. And okay. So my comic collecting had just entered that slowing down phase, mm. sometimes known as the dreaded growing up phase. <laughs> so in terms of DC and Marvel, I was just reading what I was already reading, slowly <laughs> cutting back here and there, but I wasn't adding a lot of new books or new characters. So this is one of the many titles from this era that went past my notice. And sometimes that's a good thing.
10: I think I could tell you that what happened there between 1994 and 95, I turned 21. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> your funding was going elsewhere.
10: <laughs> yes.
0: In this early to mid 90s, Pat, what were the things that you were reading?
10: All the Superman comics,
0: mm.
10: Batman comics with Detective, Deathlock, mm,
0: Deathstroke,
10: okay. G.I. Joe, of course. Uh, Punisher comics in the Impact mm, comic right, line. Good. Nice. Uh, some X Force, X Men, Image comics because that that about that time was mm-hmm. when Image was hitting the mainstream there, and some classic Star Wars.
0: Now these issues of Nomad are the middle section of a four-part mini, so I'm going to run the synopses together. We have okay. Cool Cats and Crybabies, mm-hmm. and the Wild Horses, both written by Fabian Nicieza with art by James Fry III and Mark McKenna. After waking up from his own suspended animation, Jack Monroe, the 1950s-era Bucky, now Nomad, finds himself fighting his own one-man drug war. We start Issue 2 in Kentucky, in the middle of a family drama between a strong-willed horse breeder and his drug-addicted daughter. Nomad follows the drugs for guns trail to Minneapolis where he gets caught between a teenage prostitute and her pimp and a shadowy government group has kept tabs on him all the while. And at the end of issue three, they decide to bring nomad in with the help of captain America. Your thoughts, Mm. Pat?
10: Well, I think this would probably be my second taste of nomad. At this time, I didn't know what I was getting into when I said I would do this for you.
0: (laughs) No take backs now. (laughs) Sorry,
10: man. Uh, And not knowing uh, really what was happening uh, in the first story, but you kind of, I learned a little bit more of that in the third book, in the third issue
0: Mm
11: -hmm.
10: of what the actual story was going on.
0: (sighs) It was the 90s, wasn't it? Yes.
10: Yes. Yes, it's this just guy.
0: got it's got some of those trappings. <laughs> it's got the gritty, just for the sake of being gritty. Yes, let's go, teenage prostitute and drug addicted this and corrupt that.
10: And he's this guy's a ladies' man <laughs> all the way with his Fabio haircut and muscles bulging everywhere and, and some the, of these really cool sunglasses.
0: And we didn't even mention the baby. Yes. But he's got, he picks up the baby along the way. Along the way, yeah. Which is sort of part of the, the nomad shtick from this era.
10: And not knowing, I was kind of confused on what his relationship was to Captain America. Um, to give a little bit background, was it in the 50s mm-hmm. that he was a Bucky, but to some Cap that wasn't a Cap?
0: Yeah, that's the retcon where during that era, another shadowy group of mm. government officials decided that we needed a Cap and a Bucky, even though okay. Bucky was dead and Cap was frozen.
10: Ah, uh, okay. So they
0: sort of created these characters.
10: I, I didn't do a lot of research into Nomad because...
0: Oh, there's no reason why you should.
10: I'm glad I get the pass for this class. Then
0: <laughs> It's an early 90s book. It's an early yes. Fabian Nicienza book. And that doesn't always mean good things. It's just, <laughs> like I say, rough and edgy and gritty, but yeah. no real substance to it. Yeah. It's kind of the,
10: uh, had some spy qualities to it where that group that is trying to track him down, that that was kind of interesting of them being around, Cap knowing about it.
0: That is yeah. one problem with this is that I kind of want to read number four. Yeah. Just to see how it ends.
10: Yes. And I, I, I do and I'm not
0: I, real proud of myself for that. It's <laughs> no, like I, I know they tricked me. I know that they know that I know they tricked <laughs> me, but still they tricked me.
6: Yes.
10: <laughs> I, I think you're I think you're right. So I, I'm glad I'm not the only one that was kinda of thinking, well, I wanna know how this ends now. Now that I've invested, you know, this amount of time in these two issues.
0: Well, you know, we're not here just about investing time. <laughs> On this episode, yeah. the guest gets to deliver their verdict first. Oh, okay. So were these two issues worth 25 cents?
10: I would say yes. Mm. To me, mm-hmm. 25 cents, well, yes in that I, I want to know more about the story
8: mm-hmm.
10: or how it ends, But but part of me says no. <laughs> Part of me says someone should have paid me 25 cents to read
0: <laughs> it is to me. It, it, it is a mixed verdict because yeah. clear, reading them on their own, I, I guess if you could pick up the whole mini series for a buck, sure, If you could get all four for a quarter yeah. that, but that's That'd the trick. I'm, I'm not sure it's the case with nomad, but as many people have commented, that is the problem with the cheap bins. Mm-hmm. You're able to pick up four issues of the six issue arc for a quarter. And the other two cost you seven bucks each. <laughs> you know, you never, never quite find the whole story at the price point you want. And this one definitely does have some of that 90s era excess. Yeah. But Artwork. darn it, I want to find out what happened. I think, I yeah. think I've got to say they crossed the threshold. It's going to yeah. be pretty bad. It so. not I think, be worth a quarter. And I think this one's, <laughs> I, I think these ones squeak by.
10: I guess uh, maybe we should flip the quarter and see
11: <laughs> heads or tails. <laughs> one of make that.
0: Which one was better? I kind of think number three was better though. It has the baby, but number two has I the do. horses. I don't know. But...
10: I like three better. Uh, in reading them together, I, I did like three better because it gave me a little more understanding of what was happening.
0: You've convinced me. Issue 2, not quite worth a quarter. Issue 3, barely worth a quarter. Okay. I, you've, I, 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 you, I'll, I'll You've convinced that, yeah. me. One's yeah. worth 24 cents, the other's worth 26 cents. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work for me. And uh, just so the listeners know, sometime in part 3 of episode 100, we will be revisiting this character with some issues of the Nomad ongoing series. So, brace yourselves. Thanks for joining me, Pat. Great to have you on the show.
10: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Next up, it's a true epic. Book 33 is the one, number two, from the epic comics imprint of Marvel, Cover dated September 1985. And joining me for this one is Ron, just Ron, Sadowski.
11: Hey, thank you, Professor. I appreciate you uh, having me on board.
0: Good to talk to you again. So tell me, what is your history with Epic? Uh, some of these other maybe out-of-mainstream books for around here in the
11: mid-'90s. I will truly admit that uh, I bought The One off the newsstand. Oh, my usually complexes showed showed up and we had to uh you know hey wow that's didn't know anything about that and and i had actually been looking forward to it because uh rick veck was a um regular artist uh, one of the rotating artists on uh alan moore swamp thing so i was familiar with his work what can what can you say when you know you read a blurb and it's like the last word in superheroics and and world nuclear war and uh all sorts of strangeness.
0: Everything all at once.
11: I remember picking this up as it was coming out and, and reading it monthly. I, I know that's a crazy idea. The you used to read every month. <laughs> You'd wait
0: how long in between? 30, 30 minutes? Days. 30 minutes, is that what you said? <laughs> for me here in 84, 85, the uh, sort of the alternative books I was reading may have been from first. Uh, I read a few epics. Grew the Wanderer showed up there for a while. But the one, this one, totally slipped by me. So.
11: And that's just sad. Um, <laughs> to me, Epic was just always sort of a Marvel's adult line. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is it's the adult storylines, uh, they weren't that much more adult. It's just that they would have some Kevin Storm. So,
0: <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, this story is I am he as you are he. As you are me, and we are all together. And it was written, penciled, inked, colored, lettered, probably delivered directly to your newsstand, Ron. All by Rick Veach. This is a one-man band here.
11: Yeah, there's no job below below Rick's uh, pay grade. (laughs) Uh. No, what I
0: attempted to make out of this is that The One is a skinny dude with about a foot of orange hair sticking up from his head. I guess last issue, he stopped the nuclear war and developed, along with a bunch of others, some crazy superpowers, including a brother and sister team, but the less said about them, the better. A new Cold War is underway, as is a new era in human evolution. And that's about as close as I can get to a summary, because I don't really know what I read here. (laughs) So, Ron... Help
11: me out, buddy. Okay. Uh, simply enough, uh, uh, the one is the next step uh, in human evolution. When mankind reaches that pinnacle, they step to the next level. Uh, unfortunately, what happened was uh, someone manipulated the world and, and sort of pushed us to a nuclear uh, oblivion, and the one had to come a little early to save humanity. But with the coming of the one, there's the other, the primordial uh Opposite force, the one that uh, looks to bring man down from the, the chance of it, uh, him evolving to the next level. But issue one, the, we basically have a nuclear war that gets prevented. And in issue three, we have super power beings fighting all across the planet. And issue two is Rick Vec explaining all his little philosophies about <laughs> how everything in the world, in the universe, so it co- correlates to each other. There is a lot of talking. I will say the one is a lot of people go, oh, it's weird. Yes, it's it's sort of in that 60s kind of vibe, 2001 kind of uh, uh, idea that there's something more important than just what we see on the surface. But the problem is is it's six issues, and in almost every issue, something gigantic, cataclysmic, earth-shattering happens, except issue two. <laughs>
12: Of
0: course.
11: It doesn't read well by itself.
0: (laughs) I'll put it that way. Reading this, uh, I'm reminded, and this is 1985, uh, I'm reminded that the end of the Cold War, I I I think we can agree, was on balance a good thing for the world, but it really did knock out a whole bunch of great story possibilities and premises.
11: It's hard for people nowadays, uh, these younger people, to understand. Mm -hmm. We used to live in fear of a nuclear war. The whole premise of the book came out of an article Vec had read about how we sort of have internalized that fear of the nuclear mm-hmm. annihilation as part of our culture. Yeah, and then 10 years later, we don't have that right. culture anymore because mm-hmm. that Soviet-American dichotomy sort of ended. But long and short of it, it's still a good story. Mm-hmm. suffers from a little bit of eightiesism. Veck is a child of the 60s who you know, grew up illustrating in the 70s and, and it was getting published in the 80s. So you could just imagine his influences from the underground comics that he used to read, which I didn't realize this until I was reading a, an afterword in my uh, the one collection from um, King Hell Comics, and that is his brother Tom Veck used to write underground comics They were literally working in that industry before they broke through, which sort of, you can understand sort of some of the more extreme concepts that Vec throws out there. The one came out literally like a month or two before Watchmen came out. Mm. But Vec had been actually working on it for a couple of years, so he had actually shared it with Alan Moore, Mm. who said that certain things that he picked up on, he used in Watchmen.
0: But the hype for Watchmen must have just swept this away.
11: This had all been going on since the underground comics of the 60s. The idea of taking superheroes and putting them in a realistic situation, which just completely makes them absurd. Because they're absurd characters in a real world. Mm -hmm. It's Alan Moore's fault. He's the first (laughs) one who did that exact same thing that had been done a dozen times in Mad Magazine and underground comics. But he's the first one who actually did it seriously. But the truth is, is the one influenced Alan because they were working on Swamp Thing together and right. they're swapping ideas back and forth. So hmm. the one has a, a a footnote in history.
0: There you go, there you go. As we said, it is tricky just judging one, but that is what we have to do. So the one, number two, is it worth twenty five cents?
11: Yes, but only if you can find the <laughs>
0: exactly. Other I, I, I agree s- with that, and, or if, if like you, you're just a big fan of Rick Veach and want to pick it up.
11: But I would suggest, even if you pick up the second issue for a quarter, you might want to pick up the rest for a buck each.
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa! I don't know what you're talking about, but maybe I'll let it go just this once. Well, thanks for joining me on this one. I definitely needed your help. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ron. No problem. Next up, we are hitting the streets. Book 34 is Punisher War Journal 34 from Marvel Comics, cover dated September 1991, and joining me for this one, return appearance of Chad Bokelman.
12: It is awesome to be back, Alan. I really appreciate it.
0: Do you have much of a history with the Punisher in particular, or just in general? Where were you comics-wise in the early 90s?
12: I was born in 1987, uh, <laughs> and I didn't get heavy into comics until after high school, which was uh, 2006 seven. So you
0: missed the 90s. Good on you. Very good.
8: Very <laughs> good.
12: Of the four or five comics I had as a kid that I read over and over again, one of them was Union Number Zero. One of my first comics was a very distinctly 90s series. <laughs> <laughs> On the show I do, Action Comics Weekly, I made a point to mention early on. I'm not a fan of the uh, mercenary type characters. They never really appeal to me on their own. That type of character never really appealed to me. I think they're better when they're alongside other characters. Like how you know back when when uh, Punisher appeared on uh, Daredevil. I think right. that's a cool pairing. I like seeing the two um, different psychological dichotomies, if you will but I don't like getting lost in this mindset.
0: Mm. I'm somewhat in that same boat. I've read one Punisher graphic novel, maybe a couple random issues here and there, and watched the second season of Daredevil. That's pretty much my Punisher experience. We're coming to this as as newbies. I like to think of it as fresh eyes. How about that? Sounds (laughs) more positive, right? This story, Blackout, was written by Mike Barron with art by Ron Wagner, and I counted them seven inkers.
12: <laughs> no, it's
0: not an exercise book. No, it doesn't jump around to different locations, or or time frames, or flashbacks, or it just took seven inkers. New York is in the midst of a blackout due to a series of power station explosions. Throw in a heat wave, and the Punisher finds himself trying to calm racial tensions between black and Korean communities. Because, you know, he's subtle and nuanced and really can handle an intricate situation like that. And we learn that the guy who's actually stirring up these tensions is, of course, a white guy. Punisher does stumble on a Mentally ill veteran, I guess, who receives radio waves via the metal plate in his skull. He thinks that these are the voices of the man in black, telling him to kill space aliens. And he's doing that by blowing up the power plants, I think. Frank gives him a tinfoil hat, an actual tinfoil hat, and then blows away a couple thugs who are going to beat him up. The power comes back on, and all is well. I guess in a Punisher story, this counts as they all lived happily ever after.
12: <laughs> Is this the first appearance of the the, the Punisher mobile?
0: Now, finally, the highlight of the book.
12: <laughs> <laughs> as if a man trained by the military and on his own personal vendetta with an unlimited arsenal at his hands wasn't enough. Let's put some 50 cals... <laughs> on a tank <laughs> it says here in the story it's an eight million dollar
0: vehicle <laughs> i do like the skull motif on the hood i mean come on yeah that's pretty yep like, i mean the guy's into branding i feel like it should have been a superpowers toy <laughs> i mean look it's a gritty street level story and it does deliver i guess gritty street level action
12: yeah but it's nonsensical you know if i'm picking up a random issue out of the back issue bins and i want to get a feel for a character I am lost in this story. Anything that that has any touches to anything outside of this particular Korean on black conflict, no idea what's going on. Yeah. The art is good in some places and not so good in others. And we figured out why when you were doing the
0: the creative team
12: recap.
0: This weird attempt to sort of tackle a social issue Mm. was interesting. I I'm not sure this was the right character to explore racial tensions with.
12: Somebody more like Cap would have been better. You you talk that about, you know, tensions over the last few years in our country. Put this exact comic in present day. Do we want somebody out there
0: trying to solve racial tensions with weapons? A misfit of the situation and the hero.
12: I'm, I'm trying to, and I've read it a couple of times, I'm just trying to read it in a way that... I'm not putting my personal bias against characters like Punisher into it. I still don't enjoy it too much.
0: Now, I do like one moment towards the end when he is dealing with the vet. He does give him the tinfoil hat mm-hmm. and then gives him a you know, beret, the military-style beret to wear over it to thank him for his service to Earth's defense. There's a silliness to that, obviously, but there's sort of a compassion That the Punisher is feeling for this confused, at this era, maybe shell shocked, PTSD, you know, whatever the proper labeling would be.
12: And you get, I mean, it it helps that Frank is a veteran himself. Mm -hmm. So he's got a soft spot in him for that.
0: And I'm not inherently opposed to sort of the the vigilante. I don't mind Batman. Uh, In terms of TV, one of my favorite shows of all times, The Equalizer. But one thing that this lacks. That I like in most creative works, one of the things I look for is nuance, is subtlety. And there's not a lot of room for that with The Punisher. Everything hits you over the head, or maybe we could say everything hits you right between the eyes right? in a story like this. Well, you get the honors. Is this thing worth 25 cents? No. Yeah, I mean, to me, The Punisher is obviously a popular character. I trust that there are better stories than this out there. Yeah. Like I said, I haven't read a lot of the character. And this one does not make me want to seek more out. So, not really worth a quarter. I'm sure there are Punisher stories out there that are.
12: I think maybe I'd like Punisher more in prose form. I feel like I'd like him better in a prose novel as opposed to a a graphic novel.
0: It would be nice to get a little of that internal monologue, perhaps. Exactly. Spend, Spend a little more time in his head. Well, it's a terrible way to put it, but Chad, I appreciate you taking the bullet on this one. <laughs> I
12: appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for letting me come on uh, and, uh, and, and talk about this. It's nice to appear on this show.
0: Glad to have you. Thank you, sir. Next up, we are solidly in the 2000s. Books 35 and 36 are Superman, 658 and 660 from DC Comics, cover dated January and March 2007, and joining me for this is one super Superman fan, Bob Fisher.
3: Hello! It is a thrill to finally be here.
0: Everyone knows <laughs> you are a huge fan of steel yes but i don't know how you feel about kurt busiak either his take on superman or sort of other of his comic book work
3: not huge Mm, fan of, of mr busiak overall i think he's had some high high marks and some low marks but uh this kind of time period this is not in my opinion the highlight of the history of superman
0: from my understanding just as an outsider Mm-hmm. That yes, this seems to be this maybe, is the late '90s into the 2000s. This is sort of the chronologically the the middle of the lull.
3: I think that's an excellent way to put it, uh, the lull because <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, there were some things going on, and I, you know it was interesting when you picked this because I thought, oh, I haven't read that since then. Mm, there you uh, go. Uh, let's go see what it was all about. I don't want to, you know, be real negative about Mr. Busiak, but I think overall DC and Superman were having a little bit of a tough period right now. They they were kind of directionless, if that's a Mm -hmm. word.
0: And you have been a lifelong fan of the Man of Steel or close to it? I actually found George Reeves' The
3: Adventures of uh, Superman first. I kind of say the summer of 1956. Oh, really? That long? Yes. Little kids, as you know, measure their age in half years, too. So at the great age of four and a half, I was hooked. One summer, we were vacationing in my uh, mother's family's home in Manio, North Carolina, and my uh, cousin was just a little older than me, maybe a year older than me. I was, you know, pacing around waiting for Superman to come on TV. And he said, <laughs> we don't get in Manio. They got one channel and it was not and the it one wasn't that, that one. It wasn't that one. So and he says, oh, but if you like Superman, come on. And we went out to literally the barn <laughs> in the back of the house. And there was an old traveling trunk and right on top was Superman volume one, number 43. Wow. And he said, here. And I ran in the house and said, mom, mom, here, read this to me. (laughs) And I sat on the arm of the chair and I learned how to read that summer and the following summer with those comics in that trunk. That was my beginning of comic books, that Superman number 43. (laughs) And I still have that comic book. And it was right. really funny though, you know, cause you get to first grade a year and a half later and they pull out the Dick Jane, see Dick run, see Jane, <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, okay, well, what's his secret identity? Who is he? What's his power?
5: Where's
0: the annoying boss? Where's the super villain? Right.
3: So when you can get into first grade and you already know how to spell invulnerable and what it means, <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of waiting for the C Dick run guys to catch up.
0: <laughs> well, these are two quite different stories. So We'll take them one at a time. Okay. In uh, 658, this is The Last Tomorrow by Kurt Busiak with art by Carlos Pacheco and Jesus Marino. In the future world of 2014, Lois journals the war. Luther's forces fight Kyber. The war is going poorly. The resurrected Superman confronts Kyber, dragging him into the sky. He almost kills Kyber, but can't. And instead, Kyber kills him. Scirocco kills the damaged Kyber, but loses his life in the process. Over the next several years, many others die. The sun eventually returns, and after Lois passes, Jimmy continues her journal. As far as he knows, he is the last boy on Earth, and writes his final journal entry in 2056. Back in the present... Arion argues that civilization always goes in cycles, and that Superman must not intervene. He must let civilization fall. Okay, Bob, I didn't know we were going to get this heavy. Wow. Broad thoughts on this one. Wow. Um, <laughs> exactly.
3: Because <laughs> yeah, uh, even seeing the story title, I just didn't remember this at all. And as I was reading, I'm going, whoa, this is pretty heavy. <laughs> They're killing everybody. As I mentioned, I'm not a huge, you know, Busiak fan, mm-hmm. but I really enjoyed this. I mm-hmm. thought for, you know, what it was doing, it made me want to say, ooh, this is 58. I need to go back and get the start of this right. and right. see what happened."
0: I always like it when a story takes place in the future, in the past. <laughs> yeah. Because this came <laughs> out in 2007, so it was a near-future story. Right. Starting in 2014. So. That's always just funny. Uh,
3: I love that, yeah. But it was intense. Maybe somber or sober, Mm -hmm. but it was, for the most part, the characters were in character. Lois Mm -hmm. was doing what Lois does. A lot of times, that's where uh, I think some superhero comics will fall down, is with the supporting cast.
0: She was just chronicling, just for the sake of chronicling. And then Jimmy picks it up.
3: Even his last entry— had both a, a journalism ending to it and a little humor with mm-hmm. him calling himself Jimmy Olson, last boy on earth, when obviously he's in his 60s, 70s, or 80s at that point. I was actually very surprised.
0: Yeah. Well, let's lighten up the mood at least a little <laughs> bit, I guess, in a sense. Yeah. With 660, The Art of the Prank, again written by Kurt Busiak, with art this time by Mike Manley and Brett Blevins. The Prankster's new business is creating distractions so other criminals can commit their crimes undisturbed. First off, I love the guy's business model. This <laughs> is pretty epic, actually. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, his new client, Nitro G, successfully pulls a bank job, but wants to do more and threatens Prankster until he agrees. Prankster he doesn't want to hurt people. He's just in it for the artistry. He sets up Nitro-G and arranges for Superman to be there in time to nab him. Superman triggers a bomb and has to fly off to disarm it. And when he returns, he finds Nitro-G, which I just like saying. (laughs) In his underwear, suitably embarrassed, the prankster is left, proving to potential new clients that he is not to be messed with. A slightly different tone.
3: (laughs) A little bit. You know, and it's so great because me... Being, you know, the silver age guy, I love done in ones. Give me a 22 to whatever page story that has a beginning, a middle and an end. I can pick it up. I can read it. I can laugh or cry, whatever. Mm -hmm. I really have always liked short stories. And this one had me going. I thought there were some really nice little bits right from the beginning. Yeah. Of the trap door. Oops. Nope. I see that back up. Ooh, fell in the other hole that yes. wasn't there a few <laughs> seconds ago. Uh, and the concept, the prankster says, do you want me to involve Superman? And the guy immediately says, well, no, because that'll be too expensive. You're going to want more. Prankster says, no, nope, actually 10% discount. <laughs> if I can pull a prank on Superman while I'm doing this. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, I love this little story. I think this was was a lot of fun.
0: Well, I've Uh, read enough of Astro City, a dozen, 20 issues or something, Mm -hmm. enough to recognize that, boy, this could have fit in that universe. Oh! Because there are a lot of one-and-dones and and sort of weird, oddball situations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether conceptually he'd come up with this idea of (laughs) the guy who's in the business of distracting the heroes and couldn't, couldn't work it into Astro city, threw it into a Superman pitch, you know, however it happened. Right. You know, the prankster is obviously the perfect vehicle to tell that goofy, funny story with
3: this one could translate into other media as well. This could have been an animated story. Uh, they could even do this on a Supergirl show where, you know, the, the concept is good. It's short and he gets to the point and tells jokes i like the idea of telling a story from the perspective of the bad guy right we get to see a little bit of his psyche his his sense of humor
0: but let me ask you this Mm. there was not a lot of superman in this issue yeah five panels does (laughs) does that bother you
3: No, it didn't at all in this story. You know, and I think that just goes to show the writing uh, was done so well that because they were focusing on the prankster and because it's from his point of view...
0: It's clearly in Superman's world. He's not there, but he's not a side... He's he's not a peripheral character. No, no, no. He he, he is the main character. Yeah, he's the heart of the story, even though he's not there.
3: Exactly. While you're reading this, you don't really... Think of, wow, where's Superman? Where's Superman? He showed up when he was supposed to show up, mm-hmm. acted like Superman, did what he was supposed to do. What I really also liked about this is that so many times we think of some of the B-level villains as just
0: that. The villain never sees themselves as the villain. You know, Right. We've, we've gotten that story plenty of times. Yes. But I like this the spin that you put on it. The B-level villain doesn't see himself as a B-level villain. We think he's a C or D-lister, but he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't, know. He's he's as important as Lex Luthor.
3: <laughs> Again, I was totally surprised because I don't really think of, hey, I'm going to really enjoy a comic of Superman in 2007. Let's go do that one.
0: I had that concern myself, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just just by reputation.
3: Both of them were enjoyable but totally different on the spectrum. But I need to go back and check out more. That's another thing that has happened. I made a little note. Check out more Busiak.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let's make this official. You get to deliver the verdict first. Were these issues worth a quarter?
3: Absolutely.
0: I totally agree. Totally. Again, I went in with shaky expectations. <laughs> but really dug both of these a lot. These right? really quite good.
3: I'm actually going to go back and, and read Camelot Falls the rest of the story to see how they got to this
0: end point it was great to have you here bob thanks for joining me thanks for bringing your superman fandom into the quarter bin
3: i'm just (laughs) thrilled to be here i am without words
0: now you can cross it off the list
3: now it has been checked off (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo!
0: And that wraps up my coverage of 19 issues of comics I got from Grab Bags, bringing Part 2 of Episode 100 to a close. On Part 3 of Episode 100, we'll cover another 18 or 19 comics. Books that will be covered in Part 3 include, but are not limited to, Cloak and Dagger number 1, Adventures of Superman 551, Mr. Miracle 1, 4, and 7, Warp Special, number 1, and Ravage 2099, number 3. Guests joining me on Part 3 of Episode 100 include, but are not limited to, Gene Hendricks, Stella Bowman, Nathaniel Wayne, Martin Gray, and the Irredeemable Shag. I want to thank everyone who joined me for this part two of episode one hundred to review and to let you know where you can find their work those guests were the great Kansan, Greg Arujo, of the equally great Twitter feed G A R A U J O one. Chad Bokelman, Cage Gnarly on Twitter, from the Ragman blog The Suit of Souls. Blogspot.com and The Lantern Cast. Terry Colucci, who you can find most Sundays at my church. Dr. Ange, from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary, and the Legion of Superbloggers. Bob Fisher, from the Superman Forever radio podcast at supermanforever.com. Paul Hicks is the dashing and attractive senior lead co-host of Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, which is far superior and far more entertaining than any of my own shows. And at this point, yes, I am beginning to regret my practice of asking guests to provide their own blurbs. (sighs) Billy Hogan of the Superman Fan Podcast at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com and at superman podcast on twitter hope mullinax news reporter from what the fangirl and the j guys and jedi podcast available from the two true freaks internet radio empire chris Wulette of bizarre manor at dot ron sadowski one of the top four geeks on the podcast dinner for geeks Pat Sampson from the Longbox Crusade podcast and at Longbox Crusade on Twitter and Chris Tyler co-host of the vault of startling monster horror Tales of Terror and Weekly Heroics both part of the two true freaks internet radio empire thanks all music in episode 100 part 2 was by Jeff Johnson for more information about him and his music check out arkmusic.com if you have any questions or comments about any of these issues the episode or the podcast in general feel free to contact me until the next supersized episode I'm Professor Allen and I'll see you in the quarter band The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Short Box Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes will help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.